Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I'm uh, Alex Vorhoeve. I'm a teacher in the philosophy department uh, at LSE. Uh, welcome very much to the first of our uh, Auguste Comte Memorial Lectures this year. It's uh, a great pleasure to have Professor Alan Buchanan here uh, to give these two lectures. Tomorrow's lecture will be in the same place at the same time. Uh, past lectures have been given by Jon Elster, Will Kimlicke, Philippe van Parijs, and next year uh, will be given, the lectures will be given by Francis Camp. Uh, let me say a few words by way of introduction of uh, Professor Buchanan. He teaches in the philosophy department at Duke University and works in a wide variety of areas. Some recent um, books or shortly forthcoming will be on global justice and legitimacy, uh, a collection of uh, his best essays on uh, justice in healthcare, and also on uh, biomedical and genetic enhancement, which is what today's lectures are about. Just a few words about how we're going to, how the evening will unfold. That is, um, Alan will speak until around 7.30, then we'll have uh, half an hour for questions. I'll ask you to wait, uh, raise your hand if you have a question, wait until you get the microphone from one of the stewards and just briefly introduce yourself before you um, ask the question. And around 8 o'clock we'll leave for a uh, reception to which you're all invited and I've been told not to disclose the location of this reception until the very end so that only those who sat out the evening will get their just, <laughs> their just rewards. So I will announce at the end where this fabled reception will take place. Thanks okay. for the vote of confidence. <laughs> Alan, please. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Um, the previous Auguste Comte Memorial Lecture lecturers uh, are a, a stellar crew. And uh, I have to say I'm not an expert on, on the philosophy of Auguste Comte, although I do know that John Stuart Mill thought very highly of him. And in my book, that's, that's good enough. I'm going to try to go. Uh, for a shorter period of time than Alex uh, mentioned, so we'll have more time for discussion. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, this is the title of a, a forthcoming book of mine uh, from Oxford University Press. And what I'm going to talk to you about tonight and tomorrow night is, is based on uh, a couple of chapters of that book. But you may have other concerns about enhancement other than uh, the ones that I'll be raising tonight and tomorrow night. And it's perfectly. Uh, permissible, as far as I'm concerned, if you'd like to raise those concerns during the discussion. What I say tonight and tomorrow night combined certainly won't in any way cover the whole field of ethical issues about enhancement. The, uh, there's an article on which this talk tonight is based that's also a sort of a pilot for one chapter of the book, uh, and it's uh, a co-authored article with Russell Powell, who is now at the Uhiro Center at Oxford. Uh, he's a recent uh, Duke PhD in philosophy, specializing in philosophy of biology. Now, Tennyson famously said that nature is red in tooth and claw, uh, but a less known quotation comes from Darwin in a letter to, to his friend Hooker, 
what a book a devil's chaplain might write on the clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horridly cruel works of nature. And then the third quotation that, that will inform my talk is from um, a wonderful book called The Leopard uh, by Lampudesa. And it's uh, Tancredi, who's the nephew of the main character. And at one point in the book, he says, if we want things to stay as they are, things will have to change. So keep these three quotations in mind, and I think the relevance of them will become clear as we go on. So Tennyson says nature is bloody. Darwin says nature is bloody and inept. And Tancredi says that we sometimes have to change in order to preserve what we have. So what's enhancement? Well, um, I don't want to spend a lot of time with disputes about definitions, but uh, just ordinarily we think of enhancing as increasing uh, existing capacities or creating new capacities. That is, in the context of the debate about biomedical enhancement. Uh, but that general view about enhancement applies to enhancements other than biomedical ones. So we need something a little more specific. And we can think of biomedical enhancements as scientifically-based interventions that act directly on the brain or body and that are designed to improve existing capacities or perhaps in a more radical case even create a new capacity that human beings haven't had. There are different types of biomedical enhancement, different kinds of, of uh, goals that you might try to achieve by using uh, enhancements. Uh, there are cognitive enhancements, and this might include things like increasing uh, some dimension of the performance of memory, uh, uh, improving attention, improving uh, what psychologists call executive function. Um, and then there are affective changes, uh, improving mood or temperament, or perhaps uh, improving our capacity for experiencing certain kinds of moral emotions like empathy or, or sympathy. Uh, and then there could be um, enhancements which would produce greater resistance to disease, disease or, I don't know why this appeared in the same line, or increased lifespan. So there are a number of different types of enhancements, and we can also distinguish modes of enhancement, that is the, the means or the mechanisms by which we try to bring about these various types of enhancement. Uh, drugs are among them, obviously. Uh, replacement uh, uh, and improvement of tissues and organs, perhaps using stem cell technologies or more radically synthetic biology or computerized devices. Uh, we already have cases where uh, devices have been developed uh, to allow direct interface between uh, parts of the brain and computers in efforts to uh, uh, restore a, a sort of uh, uh, approximation of normal vision for people who have, have lost their vision. Uh, we can think of uh, uh, germline genetic interventions, that is, uh, interventions in human embryos or in gametes, in sperm or eggs. Uh, and, of course, many people are concerned about this particular mode of enhancement because they're worried if we made a mistake, it might be a self-perpetuating mistake that would be passed on to the next generation. And I'll talk about that uh, quite a lot in tomorrow night's lecture. Now, um, I just wanted to do something to try to demystify the topic of biomedical enhancement. And that is, I want to point out that enhancement is not anything new for human beings, that human progress has quite a lot to do with enhancement. And we can think of literacy and numeracy and the practices of science, the use of scientific methodology, computers, the inter internet, traditional memory improvement techniques, 
and also caffeine and nicotine, all of these are cognitive enhancements. Caffeine and nicotine are, are quite uh, remarkable cognitive enhancement drugs. Uh, nicotine uh, actually increases concentration and, and, and uh, uh, improves memory. It just has very bad side effects. And there are now some drugs that have been created not for the purpose of enhancement. They were created to treat certain cognitive disorders, like attention deficit disorder, or to treat uh, the disease called narcolepsy, or to treat symptoms of Alzheimer's dementia. But it turns out that these drugs actually improve some dimensions of normal cognitive functioning. That is, you give them somebody who doesn't have any of those conditions, but he's perfectly normal, you get some uh, significant improvement in their cognitive performance. So we already have cognitive enhancement drugs uh, of an old-fashioned sort, like caffeine and nicotine, but we also have some new uh, drugs created by pharmaceutical companies which have this effect. And as it turns out, at my university, and apparently at, at a number of universities in the United States, undergraduates are taking these cognitive enhancement drugs, not just caffeine and nicotine, but th the drugs that I mentioned that were first developed for narcolepsy and attention deficit disorder, and for treating symptoms of Alzheimer's, and they're taking them in order to do better on exams and, and to study better, to study more efficiently. So there's a kind of large, uncontrolled experiment going on. Now, this may seem like a stretch to you, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stretch your conception of enhancement so that biomedical enhancement doesn't look so entirely novel. Uh, you can think of the agrarian revolution, that is, the domestication of animals and the uh, the invention of, of uh, using crop, raising crops, uh, as something that enhanced some important human capacities quite directly, enabled people to live together year-round in large numbers in a way that was never possible before. Uh, food surpluses are created, reliable food surpluses. And then you've got a whole train of events, the rise of cities, you get division of labor, you get new institutions. And I'd like you to think of institutions as something which enhances our capacity for coordinated action, that is, for the action of many people um, in an organized way that can uh, produce outcomes that wouldn't be possible if it weren't for the coordinating function of institutions. So that's just all by way of saying that, in one sense, enhancement is not new, and certainly cognitive enhancement is not new. And by the way, um, some people object to uh, biomedical cognitive enhancements, and they, they say, well, you know, if you could just uh, sort of get smarter by taking a pill or something, then this will lead to the atrophy of our powers. Well, the same thing was said about literacy, uh, and that is there were, there were uh, vociferous complaints when writing first penetrated into certain cultures. Well, now nobody will have to have a good memory because they can just write everything down. And I think there's a, a lesson to be learned in that. Now, somebody might say, look, you know, you've, you've listed these traditional enhancements of a non-biomedical sort, literacy, numeracy, things like that, but aren't biomedical enhancements really different, and aren't they different in a way that uh, somehow makes a moral difference? Well, I'm not so sure, um, uh, and here are some possibilities for why somebody might think that biomedical enhancements are different. Some people say this. They say, well, biomedical enhancements, they change our biology or some of them, those involving genetic engineering of human embryos, say, actually change the human genome. Well, it turns out that's not an accurate way of characterizing the difference between the traditional enhancements and biomedical enhancements, because in fact, some of the traditional enhancements have affected our biology. Uh, 
literacy and all learning changes the brain. The agrarian, agrarian revolution and urbanization creates selective pressures at large numbers of people living together uh, and particularly living in proximity to uh, domesticated animals like swine and fowl. And you get uh, uh, mutations of uh, viruses, influenza viruses in particular. This exerts selective pressure on human populations. The people that don't have the uh, disease-resistant genes die. They don't reproduce as many people. Uh, so the, the non-biomedical enhancements have had significant effects on the human gene pool in that way. And also, as we develop technologies and uh, uh, we develop surplus food production, so the populations go up, you get previously isolated human gene pools mixing together in ways that they never have before. But all of this changes our biology, too. So if we're going to make some sort of distinction between biomedical enhancements and other enhancements that we've had before, it can't be that. Now, here are uh, some concerns that people have about biomedical enhancement. As I said, I'm not going to be able to talk about all of them either tonight or tomorrow night. Some people worry about damaging or destroying human nature. And um, Jonathan Glover, who's in the audience, has written uh, eloquently about this and criticized people like Francis Fukuyama and others who worry that uh, especially uh, biomedical enhancements that involve genetic engineering of, of human beings uh, or human embryos, uh, they're worried that this will somehow destroy human nature. And I think Jonathan has a very sane view about this, and that is that human nature is really a mixed bag. And, um, uh, it's not at all clear that uh, every aspect of human nature is something we want to preserve. Uh, elements of human nature look like they need to be changed. And uh, we would need some uh, good evidence that it's always too risky to try to change the bad parts, that somehow changing the bad parts would, would unacceptably endanger the good parts. And tomorrow night I'm going to talk about um, a kind of metaphor that many people assume when they raise these, that kind of worry about um, biomedical enhancements. That is, they tend to think of the human organism as a kind of seamless web. And they, they tend to assume, not argue on the basis of evidence from biology, that it's not feasible to try to edit human nature and change the bad parts without the whole thing unraveling. And some of you who, who work, if any of you work in political philosophy, you'll know that there's an analogy here. Conservatives, social conservatives traditionally, have thought of society as a kind of seamless web. I'm thinking of the, the Hart-Devlin debate 50 years ago. And uh, the conservatives typically take the line, well, you know, if you make this change, you might think it's a minor change, but it's likely to unravel the whole social fabric. And I think they are uh, often as guilty of not adducing any evidence for that as people are who, who assume a sort of seamless web metaphor uh, with respect to the individual organism. And then there's just the, the, the big problem of unintended bad consequences, biological or social. And I'm going to talk about possible unintended bad biological consequences of uh, genetic modification of human embryos tomorrow night. Uh, so I'll, I'll talk about that at length. There are people like Michael Sandel who worry that the pursuit of, of enhancements itself exhibits a kind of character flaw, a sort of unseemly striving for mastery or total control. And that it also uh, worsens this vice. It both expresses a vice and it, it, it's likely to, to fuel it. Then there are people who are worried about um, injustices, distributive injustices. They're worried that uh, biomedical enhancements may be very good, but they're likely to be available only to the better off. And so the result will be that existing uh, 
unjust inequalities will become worsened by this technology. Then there are worries about dual-use concerns, that is, um, that uh, some scientists might, uh, in a good-hearted way, be trying to develop a biotech, biomedical um, enhancement technology, but then the technology will be appropriated for bad purposes, uh, say, by governments. And I can give you a possible example of this. The uh, U.S. military establishment is spending a lot of money on research into memory management. Uh, and the official justification is that uh, they want to try to reduce the incidence of post-traumatic stress syndrome in combat soldiers. And so they want to be able to edit memories in a way that will uh, break the causal chain that results in this psychiatric disorder. But some of us who have had uh, a number of dealings with the U.S. government over the years uh, have a, uh, some skepticism about this and worry that what they might really be trying to do could be more accurately described as creating remorseless warriors, that is, uh, people who can do really ghastly things over and over again, witness really ghastly things, and be unaffected by it. And uh, it's not altogether clear that that's a net improvement. Now, um, I, I know it's inevitable that uh, uh, if you hear both of these lectures, you'll think, oh, some of you will think that I'm kind of a wild-eyed enthusiast for, for biomedical enhancement, but I'm not, and I don't think it makes sense to be sort of for biomedical enhancement or against it. Uh, it would be a little bit like saying, well, I'm for globalization, or I'm against it, or I'm for technology, or I'm against it. You need something a little more fine-grained than that. Um, what I'm going to try to do mainly is to clear away what I think are some distorted assumptions that uh, lead to unproductive thinking about the ethical issues about biomedical enhancement. And that's not the same as, as making a pitch for any particular biomedical enhancement. I also want to point out that just saying no to biomedical enhancements isn't an option. Uh, we already have some biomedical enhancements, and we are inevitably going to have more because often biomedical enhancements become possible as a spin-off from efforts to treat and prevent diseases. And unless you want to stop the, the medical progress in preventing and treating diseases, you are not going to prevent the emergence of possibilities for biomedical enhancement. It's a little like globalization. I don't think, you know, I think it's a bit late to just say no to globalization. Okay, so. Um, I want to focus a little bit in this right now on uh, biological consequences, but a lot more in the next lecture. Uh, and I want to start out focusing on um, the case of biomedical enhancement that many people think is the riskiest, and that's intentional genetic modifications of human embryos or gametes aimed at enhancement. Now, what a lot of people assume, I, I alluded to this a minute ago, is that this kind of biomedical enhancement produces irreversible changes. And so if we make mistakes, they're irrevocable, and even worse, they're self-perpetuating, because these are changes in the human germline that can be passed on future generations. Just a second, let me... Well, to my great embarrassment, I'm giving tomorrow night's lecture tonight. <laughs> Somehow I, we loaded the wrong one, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. Nah, nah, it's too late. 
Okay. <laughs> make the best of it. Make the best of a bad situation. Sorry. Okay, so let's adjust our. I'm beginning to think I don't need a cognitive enhancement. I need cognitive repair at this point. Um, I should have noticed this earlier. Uh, but sorry. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, so let's talk about. Uh, intentional genetic modification for the purpose of enhancement. What we need to focus on is not whether the genetic change is irrevocable, but whether the consequences of making the genetic change, the consequences are irrevocable. And they needn't be. We have to distinguish between genotype and phenotype. And we already know how to control the expression of genes, so we know how to break the link between change in genotype and change in phenotype. Uh, in laboratory animals, this is fairly well developed. It's possible to insert genes into mice, but to do it in such a way that you have to administer a drug in order to trigger expression of the gene. So you don't get the phenotypic change unless you administer a drug. In other cases, you can insert a gene and then you can administer a drug to block the expression of the gene. So what this means is that if you made a mistake, it's not necessarily an irrevocable mistake, because it's the consequences of the genetic change that matter, not the genetic change itself. And one thing to point out is that in unintentional genetic modification, what Darwin called descent with modification, that is the ordinary operation of, of uh, sexual reproduction you know, in nature, there is a risk of irreversible, irrevocable bad consequences. That is, valuable genes disappear from the gene pool in any species, and whole species disappear, including us. And there's no reason to think that we're an exception to the fact that species tend to go extinct if things proceed the way they have been proceeding with UGM. Now, uh, when people think about the risk of, of genetic engineering of human embryos or gametes for the sake of enhancement, or for any reason, any kind of genetic modification of, of, of human embryos and gametes, sometimes they uh, appeal to what I call the master engineer analogy. And this amounts to a set of assumptions about the way evolved organisms are. And if you buy into this set of assumptions, then immediately you're going to be extremely skeptical about any attempt at genetic modification because you're going to think it's too risky. There's a tendency to think of the evolved organism, human beings included, and these are the words of President Bush's Council on Bioethics in their book, Beyond Therapy, as a, a finely balanced, complete, sort of optimal, harmonious product of a master engineer. Uh, even Nick Bostrom and Andrew Sandberg, two, two very good bioethicists at the Uhiro Center in Oxford, uh, use this language about the master engineer, and they say there's a real worry that we sort of uninformed, clumsy human beings that we are, may uh, somehow damage the work of the master engineer of evolution. So the implication is that if we're like the products of a master engineer, then uh, it's, it's foolish, dangerously foolish, for us to try to tamper with this master work, especially by such a radical technology as genetic modification of embryos or gametes. 
But the question is, is evolution really like a master engineer? Well, Richard Dawkins famously said that evolution, uh, work, at least working through natural selection, is like a blind watchmaker. But I think that's way too charitable. A watchmaker is making something to satisfy a human need, timekeeping, and the watchmaker has a plan before the watchmaker starts working. Neither of those things is true about evolution. There is no pre-existing plan, and there is no uh, effort, as it were, no goal of satisfying human needs. Human needs may or may not get satisfied by what goes on through evolutionary processes, but that's a completely contingent matter. There's no pre-existing plan. What evolution does, what, well, what natural selection does, is to respond in ad hoc ways to short-term design problems without any forethought about what the consequences down the line will be of this particular response to the current design problem. So I'm going to try to convince you that if you have to use metaphors, and maybe it's not a good idea to use metaphors or analogies here, a better one for thinking about evolution or nature, if that's what you want to think about it, is a morally blind, fickle, tightly shackled tinkerer. Not even a blind watchmaker. We'd be lucky if we had a blind watchmaker. Uh, but we certainly don't have a master engineer. And I'm going to try to explicate each adjective and back it up with um, some pretty uncontroversial facts from uh, evolutionary biology. What I'm going to do is try to compare intentional genetic modification and unintentional genetic modification, that is, regular old unassisted evolution, uh, with regard to their capacity for improving human life or even for sustaining human life. And I'm going to come to the conclusion that UGM is not a very reliable mechanism either for improving human life or even for sustaining it, and that IGM, in principle, has some distinct advantages over UGM from that perspective. So we had this uh, uh, shocking quote from Darwin, and I think it's important to remember because often people think that what Darwin really did was to show that um, we don't have to posit an intelligent designer, that, that the old argument for design for the existence of God is, is uh, obsolete. We don't need to posit that. We've got a, a naturalistic explanation of the way things are. But in a way, that's a, a misunderstanding of Darwin because he's not substituting a kind of unthinking intelligent design for a deliberate intelligent design by a creator. He's saying that we don't have intelligent design in nature. That's why he says that its nature is blundering, uh, low, clumsy, etc. Uh, his point is that if you understand evolution, then you'll see that UGM is not like a master engineer, that suboptimal design is pervasive and it's a necessary feature of evolution. It's not just uh, that things go wrong now and then. It's something that's perfectly predictable. Now, here are some examples of poor design in a human uh, species, and some of you may relate to these more than others. Um, the urinary tract in male mammals, it passes through rather than around the prostate. This is a big problem. Uh, it leads to infections and loss of function. Uh, not just human beings, but primates generally have uh, poor drainage in their sinuses. Uh, this creates lots of problems. Uh, human beings and anthropoid apes are, as far as I know, the only 
almost the only mammals that can't biosynthesize vitamin C. Uh, and this has led to a lot of misery <laughs> over, the, over the generations of human beings because it's made us prone to scurvy. Uh, the human pharynx, if you were in a biomedical engineering program and came up with a design that looked like the human pharynx, you would most certainly fail because it, it combines <coughs> respiration and ingestion of food in a way that leads to a, a really high incidence of death by choking uh, compared to uh, animals that are designed differently. Uh, the, the human birth canal passes through the female pelvis and uh, this is what I was talking about, short-term uh, design problem responses. At some point in our evolutionary past, um, there was uh, an advantage for walking upright. Knuckle walking is very inefficient, and uh, if, if food supplies were scattered sufficiently, then being able to walk upright and get to them would be a huge advantage. Uh, but uh, it's not as if this was thought through. <laughs> It, and it was a fairly rapid adaptation, and it came, it overlapped with another change, uh, and that is the increase in the size of, of the cranium. Uh, and that's a bad combination. Uh, and, and human beings have uh, a much higher incidence of uh, death or serious problems in, in the birthing process than a lot of other animals. It also leads to lower back pain, osteoarthritis, knee problems, lots of uh, difficulties. Now, that's just a laundry list of some of the problems with our design, and for every species there are similar problems, uh, and it's an incomplete list. You could go on a lot further than that. Now I want to, to point out some sort of simple facts about the way uh, evolution works that should make that kind of thing not at all surprising. I want to think of some constraints on UGM as a process for improving human life, or even for sustaining human life. This first one is really a huge uh, constraint, and that is the insensitivity of natural selection to post-reproductive quality of life. And if you think about how natural selection works, right, the, the, uh, the idea is that traits get favored if they are conducive to you passing on more of your genes to the future generations, okay? But the result of this is, if you want to use sort of anthropomorphic language, the mother nature doesn't give a hang about what happens to you post-reproductively. That is, the winnowing out process for bad traits doesn't operate, for the most part, on traits that afflict you post-reproductively. Now, given that fact, and given that human beings are living longer and longer past post-reproductive age, uh, optimal reproductive age, means that we should expect that human beings will be afflicted with all sorts of problems that evolution won't correct for. They won't get weeded out. They'll just accumulate. And this is what's happened. And here are a few of them. Cardiovascular degeneration, accumulation of mutations leading to cancer, degeneration of muscles and joints, neural degeneration. 30% uh, of people over 85 have Alzheimer's dementia. 50% of people over 90 have Alzheimer's dementia. And there are lots of other kinds of, there are multi-infarct dementia too, there are other, other ways of losing your marbles as well. Now in principle, IgM could avoid or ameliorate some of those problems. It could work around that constraint on UGM uh, by modifying tumor triggering genes 
and or ramping up tumor suppressing genes and by, or by modifying genetic networks that regulate hormones to prevent muscle loss, for example. So in principle, there are some resources of, of intentional genetic modification that could uh, do a better job of relieving some of our problems than uh, we should ever expect unintentional genetic modification to do. Here's another constraint. UGM, in UGM, selection, natural selection, does not imply optimality, even if you understand optimality in the limited biological sense of uh, being uh, maximally conducive to reproductive fitness. And this is a point I didn't really understand until I, I read quite a lot of evolutionary biology and talked to some of my colleagues in philosophy of biology. Uh, the statement, trait X has been selected, well, let's, let's take the statement, X, trait X is an adaptation. If you see the phrase is an adaptation, it's in the present tense, right? And that gives you the idea, it's telling you something about what the trait's doing now. But that's not true. So to say that something is an adaptation is to say that it has been selected for. And that's just a statement about the past. It has no implications for the present or the future. It just means that in the past, an organism in the lineage of the current organism had an advantage in terms of reproductive fitness by virtue of having this trait. But that doesn't tell you that the trait is now something which confers any kind of reproductive fitness advantage or that it will be in the future. It's a purely backward-looking statement. Now, optimality, even if you define it in this narrow way as reproductive fitness, depends on the fit between an organism and the environment. But the environment's changing. So even when some trait approximates reproductive, or some set of traits approximates reproductive fitness, that's not a fait accompli, a stable uh, attainment. It's optimality in the, in the biological sense of reproductive fitness is only fleetingly approximated. And there are some radical implications of this. That is that what was optimal may now be fatal. It also follows that the current organism is not the apex of eons of exacting evolution in this sense. It's not the case that extant organisms, say the, the current edition of human beings, are superior in design to extinct ones. I know this sounds counterintuitive, but it's really, it's really true. Because think about it. If you look at organisms earlier on, the only sense you can make of whether they're uh, well-designed is how well they fit with their environment. We're in a different environment. So it's not as if there's a constant environment and then we can measure ourselves against it and measure our predecessors against it and see which is most ad adapted and include that we're the most adapted. Evolution is not progress in fitness because fitness is always environment relative. Here's another constraint on UGM. This is a, a big one. What's optimal in the biological sense, that's what's most conducive to reproductive fitness, is not the same as, and may be at odds with, what we rightly value. Maximizing the number of genes of, that the current generation passes on is not the only thing of value. In fact, I don't think it's of any value at all in itself. I mean, it might turn out that the best way to maximize the number of genes we pass on to future generations 
is to create a situation where we have everybody producing as many children as possible up to the Malthusian breaking point so that we're all living in conditions of misery but just living well enough to keep madly reproducing more and more people who are also hovering at subsistence. But my gosh, we've optimized biologically, right? We've, we're passing on as many genes as possible. That's not good. That's, that's, there's nothing to be said for that. So the first point is that evolution doesn't even achieve optimality, or it certainly doesn't achieve it uh, in a stable way, even if you restrict optimality to uh, reproductive fitness. But even if it did that, that's not much consolation for us because we're not really interested in reproductive fitness as such. There are lots of other things that we're interested in. Here's another constraint. Under UGM, the spread of desirable mutations may be too slow and at too great a cost in human terms. For example, it took huge death rates from smallpox and bubonic plague to diffuse and then fix mutations that confer resistance to those pathogens. So you may get an improvement in a sense that you get human beings that are more resistant to those diseases, but the butcher's bill is very high. The, the way in which unassisted genetic modification does that is extremely costly. Now, we already have identified some uh, genetic variations in the human, current human population that confer resistance to some strains of HIV-AIDS. But if we are left with just the prospect of those genes proliferating through the population so that more and more people eventually become resistant to those strains of HIV, it may take a very long time. And it may not happen at all because there are a number of things that could happen to the people that have those genes uh, that would lead to their genes not being passed on in, in sufficient numbers. On the other hand, in principle, IgM could spread desirable mutations much more quickly and without the human cost. Another constraint on UGM, there's no lateral gene transfer once you get above the bacterium level. That is, uh, the way genes get passed on above that level uh, when you're getting beyond bacteria is that the only, the only gene resources that are available are the ones in the lineage of the organism in question, right? They get passed on by sexual reproduction like this. But in fact, we now have overcome that through our genetic engineering technologies. We can take genes from other lineages of the same species, and we can even take genes from other species. We can take genes from tissue samples from species that are even extinct, and we can create artificial chromosomes, packets of genes. So the storehouse of genetic resources becomes much greater. It, well, this way. In, in UGM, there's a huge storehouse of uh, genetic resources. But the tinkerer is, as it were, shackled tightly to a bench and can only reach a few of those resources. Uh, that's why I say the tinkerer is tightly shackled. But that constraint can, in principle, be overcome by intentional genetic modification. Here's another uh, constraint, what I call Pleistocene hangovers. Okay? There's this idea of the uh, environment of evolutionary adaptation. Many evolutionary biologists think that 
Uh, most of the equipment of human beings was uh, established during the Pleistocene period, maybe 150,000 years ago. Since then, there have been some changes. Uh, there have been uh, natural selective pressures uh, from infectious diseases. There's been changes in pigmentation when uh, humans came out of Africa. There have been some changes, but the basic equipment, many people think, was pretty well fixed a long time ago in the Pleistocene. Now, it, what, what was fixed, what it means is that certain traits were adaptive for that environment. And that means that people that had those traits pass those on, and that means that we tend to have those traits. But remember, those traits were, um, you know, to the extent that they're optimal, they were optimal for that environment. Well, that environment's really quite radically different from our environment. People lived in small hunter-gatherer bands. They faced completely different challenges from those that we face. And some evolutionary biologists, evolutionary psychologists in particular, think that we now have some tendencies that are best explained as being traits that were adaptive in the Pleistocene, but which are maladaptive now. And one of them is the propensity to xenophobia or hostility toward outgroup members. It might be that you can tell a natural selection story that explains why it would be adaptive for uh, human beings who lived in these small hunter-gatherer bands to have uh, a lot of solidarity with members of their own group, but be rather uh, uh, standoffish or hostile toward outgroup members. Uh, the propensity of stepchild abuse, especially in males, males abusing stepchildren, is something that's been given an evolutionary explanation too. And if you take this sort of simple um, selfish gene explanation, you can see why there might be um, selective pressures for males developing a tendency to abuse or even kill stepchildren. Uh, because uh, if you do this, then you're uh, have a better chance of increasing the proportion of your genes that get passed on in the family rather than the genes of the other bloke, right? Uh, attention deficit disorder. Some people think that uh, what we call attention deficit disorder was not really uh, a disorder for male hunter-gatherers. That for male, and attention deficit disorder is disproportionately represented in males. Uh, that uh, if you were a Pleistocene hunter, uh, you know, your, your routine didn't involve sitting in front of a screen all day long or looking at a textbook, uh, being sedentary. It was really good that you had rather labile attention and that you were aware of things in the periphery, uh, things which we now count as, as sort of distractibility and lack of focus. Now, um, these Pleistocene hangovers can persist indefinitely so long as they don't cause such serious problems that they get selected out. And they can, they can really decrease the quality of our life indefinitely without being such a problem in terms of reproductive fitness that they get winnowed out. So that's a limitation too. So um, why is the master engineer inappropriate and why is the other darker analogy more appropriate? Well. Uh, evolution is fickle in the sense that it doesn't finish products, it discards a lot of things that are of value. It's morally blind and it doesn't aim at human good, and it achieves it only by coincidence and by methods that have high moral costs. And it's tightly shackled, it's like a workman chained to a bench in a warehouse filled with tools and resources that are forever out of reach. 
Now there are a lot of, and it's a tinker because there really, there's no plan. There's no plan thought out in advance. Now there are a lot of other biological constraints on UGM that I haven't mentioned. One of them is the phenomenon of, uh, of uh, local optimality traps. Uh, an organism, uh, uh, a species may have evolved to a certain point so that it's at what uh, biologists call a particular fitness peak. And it might be that there are some possible changes it can undergo that would give it greater fitness. But the problem is that the only way it could get from the lower fitness peak to the higher fitness peak is by going through a fitness valley. That is by decreasing its fitness. And that means that it, that it will get, it, the organism will tend to get locked in at the lower fitness level. And this kind of thing apparently happens quite a lot. I mean, uh, for example, with the human eye, the human eye is kind of quirky and it's uh, kind of a high cost operation because it has this problem about inverted images and the brain has to do work to sort them out. There are better designs for eyes that you could think of. And physically, you know, if you just looked at the organism, didn't worry about its fitness, you might be able to map a long progression of changes that would go from the human eye as it's now constructed to a superior design. It's just that in the real world, because of the uh, uh, pressures that are on human beings, you will never get to that because in order to get to that better eye, you would have to undergo some changes which would decrease our visual acuity first or would otherwise make us less fit. So uh, the local optimality uh, traps for fitness is another important constraint. And there are a number of others that I haven't mentioned. Now, here's another problem with the master engineer analogy. It occurs the mistake of thinking that this is the choice we're confronted with. We can either make risky changes in the name of improvement, use biomedical technologies for enhancement, or we can just rest content with the status quo of nature as usual. But there is no status quo of nature as usual. That's the point, okay? Evolution means change. It means highly unstable organisms, shifting environments. There's no guarantee that if we don't intervene, things will be just fine. The existing human organism is not a finely balanced, stable, completed product. That will continue as it is, absent deliberate intervention by human beings. It's an unstable, internally conflicted, flawed entity, vainly attempting to keep up with the changes in its environment. This is the famous Red Queen analogy by the evolutionary biologist Van Valen. My students always say Van Halen. They think of the guitarist. No, it's not Van Halen. It's Van Valen. Okay. Um, you know, the Red Queen is running faster and faster just to keep from falling behind as the ground crumbles underneath her feet. Well, that's the proper analogy for an organism. And that leads me to Tancredi's um, striking statement in The Leper. By the way, The Leper was made into a wonderful film with Burt Lancaster and Claudia Cardinale in the 1960s, and, it, and the, the, the screenplay, the dialogue, follows the book perfectly. Uh, the book is, I think, the best uh, fictional re reflection on what it means to be a conservative, right? Because the, the, the old duke, the, the uh, Sicilian aristocrat, uh, he wants to be a conservative. He wants to conserve the place of his family and the aristocratic heritage. But the question is, how do you do that in, in revolutionary times? And Tancredi, his nephew, says, well, you know, 
If you want things to remain the same, things have got to change. And that's a, that's and then the question is, well, which things do you change? You know, what do you you, know, you have to change things in order to conserve what's valuable? But how do you know what what will enable you to do that, and what will imperil even further the things that you cherish? So what I want to suggest is that we might even have to enhance in order to conserve some of the goods that we have. Uh, here's some possible examples, and I'm going to take the third one first because I think it's the most obvious one, the most compelling one. Uh, I mentioned that, that uh, human beings are living longer, but we have this problem that uh, natural selection doesn't winnow out undesirable traits uh, post-reproductively. And that's a bad combination. Now, um, the, the, the worst case scenario is that this continues and you have people living much longer, but they're having a longer period of frailty and disability. And what we want is longer life, but we want what's called compression of morbidity. We want the bad stuff to be compressed into the shortest possible period toward the end of the life. We want a, a vigorous old age for as long as we can get it. And we may not be able to do that without biomedical enhancements. Um, and, and the biomedical enhancements could be the sort that I mentioned before, things like uh, neural tissue implants, or they could be pharmacological, uh, they could be um, uh, you know, hormonal kinds of uh, uh, changes. But they might turn out to be more radical things that would uh, uh, mitigate the process of aging in cells, something at the very basic kind of level. That would be the more radical prospect. But here are some other possible uh, biomedical enhancements that might be needed just to keep things from getting a lot worse. I mean, I think things would be a lot worse if people lived on average to be 110 and were really miserable for the last 30 years. I think that would be worse than what we have now. So that, that's why I think this is an example of how an enhancement might be needed to preserve the status quo. The status quo in that case being just sort of the way lives, how well lives go on average. But here's some other possibilities. Um, uh, you might need enhanced reproduction to counteract drastic declines in fertility due to environmental toxins. How many people saw the film Children of Men in this film? Well, the scenario is that you know, women all over the world are becoming fertile, and there's only one woman that's fertile. Um, and my immediate response was, well, why are they still relying on old-fashioned, low-tech uh, human <laughs> reproduction? You know? um, why aren't they uh, you know, cloning people or something like that? Uh, so that's one possibility. Uh, if the Montreal Agreement breaks down and, and the ozone layer starts getting bigger, more and more depleted, and skin cancer rates go up astronomically, as some people have predicted, uh, we might need to change ourselves uh, biologically in some way to try to make ourselves more resistant to skin cancer. It's possible. Um, we may need enhancements of our normal human immune capacities to counter threats that are posed by emerging pandemics. Okay, one of the nasty features of globalization is that you get populations mixing up, populations coming into contact with animals, non-human animals they haven't come in contact before, uh, rapid mutations of viruses, uh, moving from non-humans to humans. Um, and uh, we now have a way of sort of trying to get the most out of our existing immune system capacities called vaccinations, but maybe we need something more radical than that. Uh, and we might need cognitive and or affective enhancements to enable to, uh, us to cope better with major problems like war and global warming. 
So framing the worry about bad unintended consequences in terms of tampering with the work of a master engineer is very misleading. It betrays a gross misunderstanding of evolution, and it undervalues IGM as a way of avoiding the limitations of evolutionary processes as a means toward human improvement, or even perhaps toward preserving our own current good. In other words, if you buy into the master engineer analogy, you're likely to be biased in your assessment of the possibilities of intentional genetic modification, either for purpose of enhancement or for any other purpose. And I think it's important to get rid of that analogy so that you can take a more sober, uh, objective look at what the risks are. And I mentioned this before, there's a related conservative analogy, the idea uh, that the individual organism is like a seamless web, and then traditional conservatives tend to think of society as like a seamless web. And the implication is, is tremendous fragility, that you might think you're making a benign minor change, but you're likely to cause the whole thing to unravel and throw out the baby with the bathwater, lose the good stuff with the bad stuff. And I mentioned before that the famous Hart-Devlin debate uh, 50 years ago, uh, Lord Devlin, the conservative, took this view that society is like a seamless web, and he was really making an unsupported empirical claim, and it turned out a prediction that, that was false. And he predicted that if, that if the UK struck down its uh, laws criminalizing homosexual behavior in public, that uh, you know, this would sort of uh, undermine the moral foundations of society, uh, and it doesn't like, look like it did, unless you count as the moral foundations of society on, uh, being undermined the fact that homosexuals are allowed to uh, demonstrate their affections in public, but I don't think that's a very good, uh, good argument. So bioconservatives and social conservatives don't tend to provide evidence of seamlessness. And now I want to suggest that if you look at the individual organism case, if you look at the biology of evolved organisms, there's actually reason to believe that they're not very much like seamless webs. So it's not just that the bioconservative doesn't give positive evidence that we're like seamless webs. It looks like when you start to look at the evidence in the right places, you find some evidence that makes the seamless web analogy look very dubious. And here are just some features of uh, the evolution of organisms that point us away from rather than toward the analogy of a, of a seamless web. First of all, there's modularity of design. A module, by definition, is a system or subsystem that has denser connections within it than it has connections to things outside of it. So you can think of modularity as uh, there being seams in the web that uh, make parts of the web relatively recalcitrant to being affected by what goes on outside beyond the seam. And human beings, like other organisms, exhibit a good deal of modularity in design. There's also a good deal of redundancy, uh, and uh, the same function can be performed uh, in, by, by, by different systems or subsystems, and sometimes when one system is damaged, another system can uh, compensate well enough. Uh, I mean, the brain is pretty plastic. That might be one, one example. You can ablate certain parts of the brain, and then other parts will take over the functions. And that also is a kind of limitation on at least the implications of the seamless web idea, because if you unwittingly made a mistake in your biomedical intervention, 
and you damage the ability of one subsystem to perform a function, that may not be disastrous if there's redundancy, right? If something else can do it. There's a, a, a third item is slightly more technical notion. It's called cannibalization. And in simple terms, it's the idea that you can get the same dish with different recipes. Catalyzation is the tendency of an organism in its developmental process, in ontogeny, development from the embryo to the completed organism. It's the tendency to produce the same phenotype across differences in genotype and environment. So it's, you don't have a simple situation always where you've got to have this precise genotype in order to get this outcome of this phenotype. The connection is looser than that. That's another way of saying the seamless web analogy, which is an idea of extreme dense interconnectedness, is not so appropriate. And then the fourth item may be the biggest one, and that is natural selection works in an incremental way. In a way, natural selection requires that the connections among the different traits of an organism not be too tight, because it requires the ability for the organism to change in some minor ways with nothing else changing at all. That's how it works. And then there's an accumulation of these minor incremental changes, and you get some significant shift in the phenotype of the organism. So it doesn't look like natural selection could work the way it does work if organisms were as densely interconnected in their different aspects as the seamless web analogy suggests. Now, having said that, I, I don't want to get the idea that I don't think there are serious issues about bad unintended biological consequences. I think there are, and I want to just very quickly um, say what I think a, a better way to respond to them would be. On the one hand, we don't want to buy into the seamless web or master engineer analogy and throw up our hands and say, no, no, we shouldn't ever try to make any changes. On the other hand, we don't want to rest content with some platitudes like, oh yeah, go slow, be cautious, you know, um, etc. We want some more fine-grained cautionary advice about how to proceed. And um, I think in the case of, of genetic modifications, the key to this is thinking ontogeny, that is thinking about the developmental process from the embryo to the completed organism. Five minutes, okay. I think I can do it five minutes, actually. Um, the lecture I should have given tonight is shorter, by the way, if that's, if that's any, any consolation. All right. Um, the thing about IgM is that it intervenes very early in the ontogeny process. It intervenes early enough in the embryo's development so that the changes, the genetic changes that are made will be replicated you know, as the cell, cell division process goes on. And so that should give you some clues about what you should watch out for by way of unintended bad consequences. So you, have, you need precautionary rules or heuristics that are informed by an understanding of, of ontogeny. Now, I'm going to skip over this. Bostrom and Sandberg have a different view. Uh, I can come back to that. But um, Powell and I criticize their view and then go on to present um, our own view. And we have this idea that you can compose a list of cautionary heuristics that act in the way that, that Rawls referred to in his first book on justice as counting principles. That is, it's a kind of checklist. If you're looking at a proposed intervention, in this case a, a genetic intervention, 
you ask whether that intervention satisfies these principles, and the more of them it satisfies, and the higher the degree to which it satisfies them, the more reason you have to be confident that you've taken reasonable precautions against unintended bad consequences. It's not a set of necessary and sufficient conditions that says, yeah, if it passes this test, then you don't have anything to worry about. It's a risk reduction strategy. And here are some of the kind of principles we think are appropriate. The intentional genetic modification targets genes that lie downstream rather than upstream in the organism's developmental process. I mean, if you think about the, the process that's going on, well, changes that occur very early on in the process tend to have more profound effects for what happens later than changes that occur later in the process because lots of the work's already been done by stuff going on earlier. So if you're altering a gene that gets switched on very early and does a lot of developmental work early on in the process of ontogeny, a mistake there is likely to have much worse consequences, other things being equal, than a mistake you make with respect to a, a gene or a set of, of genes later on, downstream in the process. Second, the intention genetic modification successful would not produce an enhancement that exceeds the upper bound of the current normal range. Suppose you're thinking about influencing intelligence or some aspect of it. It's one thing to say you're going to try to raise everybody up near the current upper bound of the normal intelligence distribution. It's another thing to say you're kind of trying to make a human being have an IQ of 200. We have examples of people who have IQs of 140. We don't have existing examples of people with IQs of 200. And so we don't know whether there might be things that tend to go wrong <laughs> if, you, if you make that much of a change. Third, the intervention's effects are containable within the organism. Fourth, the intervention involves a highly modularized system or subsystem of the organism. And these last two things are, are meant to limit the damage if you make a mistake. The damage won't spill over into other areas. Uh, the, the intervention's effects are reversible, or better yet, they have to be deliberately activated in each organism by, say, administering a drug that will trigger gene expression. Um, well, I think you get the idea. I'm happy to talk about these in more detail. I'm sorry it took so long, but um, again, I'm not making a pitch in favor of us uh, wildly plunging into genetic modifications of human beings. I'm more concerned with how we think about the problem and how we frame the problem of unintended bad consequences, biological consequences in this case. Thank you. All right, we have about um, 20, 25 minutes for questions. So if you have a question, please raise your hand. May I ask you to wait until uh, you have a microphone and then briefly state your name. And also, uh, the idea is to give a short and direct question to the speaker. Yeah, over here. Uh, Richard Bradley. Um, so I wonder if you've done uh, uh, full justice to the role that the seamless web idea is playing in, in the conservative view, because it seems to me that in order to, in order to be a conservative, you don't have to think that, uh, you don't have to be sure that, yeah, yeah. that the human being is, you just have to think there's a very, very small chance that there are all kinds of very uh, important interdependencies between yeah, yeah. certain biological features, parts of the culture that we like. 
we don't think it's so, but there's enough of a risk, and 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 it's the implication of missing it is is catastrophe, and that's yeah. Okay, I, I, I'm sensitive to this. I mean, I, I guess my response would be this: um, often when people say that, they're assuming that things are going okay now, and there's no re- reason to take, there's good reason not to take a risk, even if it's a very small risk in terms of the probabilities, if the magnitude of the harm is great enough. But that assumes that uh, two things. It assumes that the status quo is okay, and it assumes that the status quo is something we can count on persisting if we don't intervene. And I think the status quo, in a lot of cases, is not okay, and especially for some human beings, the status quo is not okay. Uh, And I also think we can't rely on the status quo sustaining itself. Uh, And and so if if you... uh, think those two assumptions about the, the, the adequacy of the status quo and the stability of it are dubious, then I think you'll be more inclined to think it's reasonable to take risks that you otherwise wouldn't think were acceptable. And um, there are serious risks of, of varying probabilities, but of, of, with potentially great magnitude of harms, of not intervening in the human organism. Probably the biggest risk is extinction. I mean, all we know about evolution so far is that every species goes extinct. Next question. Uh, yeah, the gentleman right here in the red sweater. Hello, um, John Pugh. I've come in from the streets, um, but I'm actually um, an old old fossil in science, one of the fathers of modern molecular epigenetics from the 1970s. Um, you used the word tinker. And I think Francois Jacob used the word tinker toys, at least in translation. It might be useful um, reference, uh, the logic of living systems from oh. about 1970. Um, exactly a, a different aspect that you, than Dawkins, the line oh, okay. that you were making. Um, it seems to me that evolution is conservative and opportunistic, and those are sometimes contradictory things. Hmm. And the conservative side of it has led to uh, a structure of switches early embryogenesis and so on, which you don't want to touch. And the opportunistic side, uh, downstream if you like, is more like ecology. If there's a molecular interaction that can take place, it's an opportunity uh, for selection to intervene and produce um, some change change in in the organism. And I think the, the problem with what you're suggesting is that you actually want it to be the superb engineer. And your ability to do that actually depends on your knowledge completely. Oh, yeah, yeah. And at the moment, yeah. it's just not there. I agree. And I agree. any mistake there is going to result in people who have been modified being told, you, you can't reproduce in a certain way because you're going to pass on things that we now decide are not very good. And culturally, you're going to have a problem. We actually can identify... Sorry, can you uh, keep, uh, yeah, yes, wind up your thing, contribution? Culturally, at the moment, we can identify with Homer. But when we mod- are modified, we're going to have before modification and after modification, and a, a very, very amazing change in society, probably. And that's something that you haven't actually considered. No, no, that, that's right. I, mean, look, I can't respond to everything you said, but, but, because you said an awful lot that's interesting. But uh, there are issues about, um, uh, about some segment of the current human population being modified in such a way that they would be unable to reproduce 
at least in, in uh, the normal low-tech ways, with other human beings that were unenhanced. And there, there are sort of issues about, as it were, genetic secession and new speciation and that kind of thing, which I think are, are serious issues. And I have uh, addressed them in a paper recently in a, in a journal called Philosophy and Public Affairs. But I, I'm aware of them, but I, I wasn't trying to bite off that huge uh, chunk now. Um, yes, the gentleman there at the back. Hi, um, my name's Rafi Alos. Um, I was just interested, you were talking in terms of the conservation, um, using enhancement to conserve the current goods, and do you think that there is a, there is a possibility that um, in terms of promoting enhancement and concentrating on enhancement, one can fall away from um, adapt uh, changing the environment, and if we're thinking of problems like global warming or um, increasing rates of obesity, then one can look to reductions in carbon emissions and changes in the environment in relation to food and activity and that sort of thing, rather than necessarily enhancements. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, think, I don't think these things are exclusive, right? I mean, um, we, we've had the cognitive enhancement of science, scientific method and practices, and most of us think that that's something that's valuable for coping with the environmental problems that we've created or we've contributed to. And so we might need more of that kind of thing. We might need further cognitive enhancements to cope with the problems that we've created. And I'm not suggesting that um, uh, you know, we're doing enough uh, to uh, cope with the problems with the equipment we already have. I don't think that's true at all. I'm just not ruling out the possibility that we may need better equipment to deal uh, effectively with some uh, problems that we have. And I, I, I've talked to uh, information technology people who design new uh, information technology, and they think that um, we're already very limited as to what we can get out of uh, existing information technology. We'll be further limited uh, uh, as to what we can get out of new developments in information technology because of the inadequacy of the human part of the interface. Uh, and that, that uh, we, we may need to ramp up some of our abilities in order to get the most out of this, uh, as it were, this external cognitive enhancement that we call information technology. I just wouldn't rule anything out like that. And uh, again, my main point is that we shouldn't just think of enhancements as things that are designed to improve us relative to the status quo. Remember, enhancement is always enhancement of a capacity. And we might enhance a capacity not in order to make us better off overall than we are now, but just to prevent us from getting worse off in some way as a result of things we've already done. Uh, the madam right here. Thank you. I'm, I'm so grateful to you for what you just said. I mean, I think it's absolutely terrific. But you didn't answer the question which you posed about the inequalities. Yeah, no, I didn't. Of, no, no. Can you do that? You know what I'm doing. No, I, I didn't. And I, I was just sort of listing uh, what I think a lot of the problems are and then trying to make it clear that I'm not going to try to address all. I'm only focusing really on, on a couple of them. Uh, and uh, it's just a, a brief word on the inequality issue. I think the important thing, again, is to put biomedical enhancements in perspective. Other enhancements we've had historically have not been available to everybody right away. Uh, literacy was only available to an elite, and I'm sure that that elite used it to dominate and exploit people who didn't have this cognitive enhancement. Uh, and technologies generally don't diffuse immediately, although cell phone technologies have diffused more rapidly than anybody ever imagined possible. Uh, and I think what we need to think about is 
uh, study the history of the, of the diffusion of technologies, learn what we can, and if we identify a really valuable enhancement technology, we need to try to think about how we can speed the diffusion of it, especially to people who would be likely to be most vulnerable if they didn't have access to it. Uh, and, and this may involve some uh, tweaking to our intellectual property rights system because that affects the, the rate of diffusion of technologies. And I've just co-authored a paper with an international lawyer and international relations specialist on this problem. So I, I don't think we want to say we shouldn't have an improvement unless everybody can have it right away. That would mean that India can't move further ahead until Ethiopia catches up or something like that. That seems crazy. But on the other hand, we don't want to facilely assume there'll be trickle down and that everything will be fine. We need to think about how we can act in a way in, in global public policy that will uh, shorten the time span in which some people are, are disadvantaged by not having access to valuable enhancements. Uh, you the gentleman here in the uh, blue suit. Yeah, Kai Spiegelmann, Department of Government. Um, quite at the beginning, you you argued that, well, actually, um, enhancements um, that are produced by in a biomedical way are quite similar to other enhancements that we've seen, like literacy, use of computers, and so on. So but there seem to be at least two relevant differences here, and the differences are about, well, the social epistemology of adapting these um, changes. So. I mean, in the case of literacy and computers, there was a long process, someone came up with an idea, and then people gradually started adapting these ideas. So they went through a long test. Now, in terms of biomedical enhancements, you don't really have this screen. Um, these um, improvements are very fast. Um, you can pursue them in a very instrumental way, and often you don't know what is going to happen until a long time after. Yeah. And that yeah. seems to increase the risk quite dramatically. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and I think that's why I, I mentioned this case of undergraduates in the United States and some professors, too, using uh, drugs developed to treat attention deficit disorder or Alzheimer's and using the cognitive enhancements. It's kind of a wild, uncontrolled experiment. Like, and it might turn out that five years from now, there's, we find out there's some disastrous side effect. Okay. Well, I think what we need to do is to uh, think of biomedical enhancements as a legitimate kind of enterprise. And then we need to... Uh, use what we already know <laughs> the ethics and regulation of human experimentation on human beings to bring this uh, under control in a more disciplined way and start small and try to make it containable and not let it just, just open the floodgates. And the floodgates will be open if enhancements keep coming in the back door as spin-offs of, of treatment and prevention of disease because they'll never be viewed as a legitimate object of public policy that we can regulate in the way that we regulate other things. So I, I think that it, you, you may be right, it may happen that we're going to have this really rapid, wide-scale adaptation of, 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 of adoption of some biomedical uh, enhancement technology. I think that would be bad. But I think there are things we can do to reduce the risk that will happen. And one of them is to quit pretending that there's something unseemly or inappropriate about enhancement as such, as compared to treatment or prevention of disease and view it as a legitimate kind of enterprise for human beings to be engaged in and make it an object of, of public policy deliberation and regulation. The gentleman here at the front. Hi. Um, Dean Peters from the LSE. So part of what got me worried about what you're talking about is 
um, sort of flattening out certain aspects of human diversity, right? And I'm, I don't want to say that all aspects of human diversity are good, right? So I think it's pretty clear that having Alzheimer's is worse than not having Alzheimer's. But some of the examples you used were a bit more worrying to me, like for instance, ADHD, um, you talk about, um, look, we, we just aren't equipped to get the most out of our technology in terms of computer technology. And these seem to me cases where it's, you can just as easily attribute the difficulties to the t technology or just to the user interface um, as you can to the human user. And I guess what I'm concerned about is that we just say it's going to be easier to modify the humans who are using the, the technology than to modify the technology no, itself. I, mean, I think in general you should first try to modify the external uh, stuff. I'm just saying that it's, it's, it, there might be a point at which you need modifications at both, on both terms of the, of the interface. But now this point about variation I think is interesting because some people are worried that if we uh, use uh, intentional genetic modification of humans we're going to limit uh, genetic diversity. And I'm just not sure that that's likely. Uh, for one thing, um, if you think about it, natural selection is a gene filter. Natural selection reduces genetic diversity. That's what it does. It makes sure that some genes don't get passed on to the next generation. And it operates in such a way that those genes are just gone. They're not available anymore. Um, with intentional genetic modification, um, it, it may be, uh, and with, with technologies to cope with gene expression, it may be possible actually to allow for the persistence of a lot of genes uh, without the bad consequences of them that they're, that they're, that they're maybe having now and, and have them in reserve for future uses in a way that wouldn't be possible with, with natural selection. Now, some people are worried that human beings are sort of herd animals and that there might be a, a, a dominant aesthetic model of the good human being and that we'll all look like you know, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie or something like that. I'm not so sure about that. I, I was teaching a class on this at the University of Wisconsin, and this issue came up, and a, a very Nordic-looking uh, chap, a young guy, said, well, you know, maybe this genetic modification is not a good thing because everybody would want to have tall, blonde, blue-eyed children. <laughs> and uh, there was a Nigerian guy sitting next to him, and the Nigerian said, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right, this is, there, there, there's something to that. Um, over here, um, Nick Rose. Hi, thanks for that. I'm Nicholas Rose. I'm the director of the Biocenter here at the LSE. Um, very interesting. I mean, it's clear that human beings do modulate themselves in all kinds of ways and have done for a long time and, and do now in relation to aging and so on and so forth. Um, and what you're calling enhancement seems to me to be only one aspect of that. But I think there are two problems with your idea of design, the idea of design, especially uh, in your uh, in, uh, intelligent genetic design. Um, and the first, I'm afraid, is boringly empirical, which is that you hugely overestimate the level at which we know some specific relationship between what's happening at the level of a sequence in the genome and what's happening at the level of a human capacity or competence. I mean, I work a lot oh, yeah. in the area of psychiatry, and that dream in psychiatry, which has been there for so long, has proven to be a completely uh, un, uh, unproductive research pathway. So um, even if what you're saying was right in principle, I think it has some problems in practice. So that's one problem with the design metaphor, which you maintain. And the, and the second is just a little question. Uh, who are going to be the designers? Okay, look. 
Stop right there. Good points, both of them. Okay. Uh, I think that with some uh, non-human animal models, we know quite a bit about some of the effects of some particular gene changes. But that's quite different from saying that we know what the determinant relationship is between genotype and the phenotype we care about in human beings. I agree with that entirely. And what I'm saying is that if you're thinking about the risks of genetic modification, you've got to think about the causal relationships. And if you don't know enough about the causal relationships, then you, you don't know. I just think that in animal models, we're learning more and more. And some of that is going to be of some use for knowing what we'd be likely to expect in humans. Some of it won't be because humans are so different. Right? Uh, and because the traits we're interested in human beings are so much more complex and are likely to have a much more complex genetic basis. So I agree with all that. And all of these uh, cautionary heuristics are just designed to be knowledge sensitive. That is, you, they don't even come into play unless you know some of the relevant causal information. Uh, but they also point you toward trying to learn more about what the causal connections are and recognize that as knowledge increases, then we may have better ways of acting responsibly to make changes. But I agree entirely, and that's why, I, in some ways, I'm, I'm sometimes reluctant to talk about genetic modification of human beings because I think it's the least likely mode of biomedical enhancement for the foreseeable future. Instead, I think that pharmacological enhancements are much more, uh, they're already here and they're going to be more of them. Um, and I, 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 so I, I agree with that. Now, the, the, the other point um, was who's going to do this? You've you got to realize, I was very cagey all along. I said that these are the advantage of, as, of, in, of intentional genetic modification in principle. That's just a claim about what the physical resources of, the, of these techniques is compared to the physical resources of the unintentional genetic modification. But there's a huge gap between saying, in principle, intentional genetic modification, were it used properly, would get around some of these constraints of unintentional genetic modification. There's a huge gap between saying that and making any recommendation that we should use these things. Because you're right, the question is, who would have the authority to use them? And all of the kinds of issues that Jonathan Glover and others have talked about, about the rights of parents with respect to their offspring, about even in the case where you're making a change just in yourself um, that wouldn't be passed on, would have to be um, uh, uh, initiated by administering a drug later for the gene expression in future generations. There's still all sorts of issues about, uh, about informed consent, about what society's priorities ought to be by way of investing in, in the human capital for developing technologies and for then for, for making them accessible. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm not denying any of that. I'm really, I'm really, in a way, making a very limited point, and that is that we need to frame the issue of risk appropriately. Uh, and that means getting away from metaphors that can't really be backed up. But I, I agree. I mean, I don't like to talk about genetically designing human beings. At most, you can uh, design the genotype of, of a human being. But that's not the same as designing a human being, both because there's a gap between genotype and phenotype and because we know so little about what the effects of... I mean, I, I could give you a plan for what, what genes to insert in human embryo. In that sense, you could design it. But that's not the same as saying you have much of an idea of what you're going to get as a result. And uh, if 
final question. Uh, Jonathan Glover here in the uh, yellow coat. Jonathan Glover, King's College. Um, I'd like to ask you a question about the values that might guide our uses of this. Uh, partly this links up with Nicholas Rose's yeah. question. Uh, because you, you did a lot of the time talk about what we might do. And it's fairly obvious, I suppose, that the, there are going to be different values likely to be influential according to the particular social arrangements we make about who will decide. So that, for instance, if parents are choosing on behalf of their children, they might well want to make them thrusting, competitive, or give them various other characteristics that uh, link up with economic success, for instance. If uh, national governments were to decide, linking up with what you said about uh, the American government's possible uses of some kinds of enhancement, uh, national governments might want to give people uh, strong patriotic feelings. Right. If there was a, if a there, nationalism gene. If there was a world uh, authority that did it, uh, there might be some idea yeah. that we ought to be enhanced in the direction of making us care more about people in abject poverty at considerable distance from us. So you're going to get very, very different yeah. values in play yeah. according to the institutional good. mechanisms. Good. Good. So yeah. one question is about that, good. and the other one is, suppose we somehow had a formula for the institutional side of it. Some people say that uh, some of our values are themselves chance products of our evolution, right. even if they're programmed in, right. we ought to consider changing them. Right, right. But on the other hand, we are talking about our human values. Are any of them going to be ring-fenced, as, as it were, the central core of values, in terms of which we can think about whether or not we should change the others? Yeah, okay. I, I think actually that, um, well, take your, your, your case in your book, Choosing Children. Um, you think we're on solid ground in evaluating some aspects of human nature negatively. That is, we think there are some aspects of what people are human nature that are, that are negative. Uh, and so, the, in a sense, that means that we've got a vantage point, seemingly a coherent vantage point for evaluation, that's not completely determined by, by our current human nature, right? Because we can, as it were, step back and look at parts of our human nature and say some of them are good and some of them are bad. Um, that doesn't mean that we, we could sort of have a coherent evaluation of making a totally radical change. Because it's hard to know from what perspective we would make that. The perspective for change always has to be somehow internal to the way we are. But we're still capable of evaluating parts of the way we are negatively. Um, and I think there's a certain amount of uh, consensus as to what some of the bad parts of human nature are. I think some of the you know, some of the main religions view, have a sort of view of sinfulness that fairly congruent in some ways with each other. Uh, but now this, this other question about whose perspective, whose values would be infusing the process, I am going to talk about that tomorrow night because um, I think that in the, you may disagree with me, I think that in the biomedical enhancement literature, there's been a tendency to think in the following way. Well, we had this, this bad run with eugenics. And so we, we know that we don't want to have government involvement in this kind of stuff. So we're going to have it a matter of personal goods, uh, and there's going to be a lot of autonomy for parents and, uh, 
you know, individuals to choose these things. So, uh, because the old bad eugenics was very coercive and all of that. But I think it's a mistake to think of it that way. I think, in fact, it's, it's uh, in a way overly optimistic because uh, traditionally governments have been interested in enhancements that they think will increase national productivity, economic, economic productivity. And if you think about the sort of the rise of the welfare state in Western Europe in the late 19th century, uh, when, when Bismarck and others were arguing for legislation that would uh, create sort of welfare entitlements to unemployment insurance, uh, health insurance, and stuff like that, they weren't saying, you know, we're doing this because individuals have rights. It was they're doing it for the collective, you know, a stronger German nation, blah, 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 et cetera. And modern states are very much concerned about economic productivity. And so I don't think we can assume that governments are going to leave this stuff alone. And I'm not talking about the really sinister misuses like the remorseless soldiers and stuff. But if, if governments come to view some cognitive enhancements in the way they view basic education, they are going to encourage it in some way. So I think it's, it's a luxury we can't afford to assume that we sort of learned our lesson from eugenics and now it's just going to be a matter of how we sort of regulate and self-discipline personal choices about biomedical enhancement. I think that would be a big mistake. Uh, and there are good and bad aspects to thinking about state involvement. I mean, if states were only involved in, in sort of trying to ensure that the uncontroversially beneficial enhancements diffuse rapidly to everybody, especially the worst off, that would be a pretty beneficent role for the state, right? Uh, but if the state starts pushing the development of enhancement technologies in the direction of what states tend to value, where this differs from what individuals tend to value, that can be a very bad thing. Um, but I, I mean, I, you know, that's a, a whole, whole set of issues. Yeah. Huge issues. Good. Thank you so much uh, to the audience and to the speaker for a good discussion.